hello, we're going to have an audience of how many? 3.5 million? Okay, yeah, we would like more money, please. Hello, and welcome to the Eurowatch, episode number 165 for the week of August 8th, 2022. I'm Ben Smith, and I'm joined today by Mike McComb. Hey, Mike. Hello. We are a pair of Americans trying to make sense of the Eurovision Song Contest, and this week, we'll be talking about the very first Eurovision Song Contest. How's it going, Mike? Oh, it's going all right. How are you doing? Good. It is a great time to stay inside and do a bunch of research about television, because it's been very hot outside. Yeah, yeah. It's been very milty here in Chicago. And I'm sure our European listeners are just like, yeah, we know. It's like, we are aware. (laughs) We are not built for this. Please help. Keep cool, everybody. In terms of news, things are happening, kind of. Yeah. I mean, as quickly as they can, given that it is summer, everybody's on vacation, and we do have the unusual circumstances of the coming year's contest. But now that we know that the UK is going to be hosting Eurovision, the BBC has released a very high-level outline of what the bid process is going to look like to determine the host city for next year's contest. It's really not that different from any other bid process, from what I can tell. Yeah, Um, from what I saw, it felt very similar. We have a lot of cities in contention, and like they're, they've said it might be like a two-phase process, but other than that, it felt very standard. The host city will be determined by the BBC and the EBU. That part kind of surprised me, since it didn't mention the Ukrainian broadcaster, but I'm guessing this is one part of the process where it really does need to be like the UK side of things, since it's like where this thing's actually going to be held. But yeah, they'll submit the bids, the bids will get reviewed. A short list will be formed and city visits to determine the capacity. We don't have any specifics on what the rules are for like size of venue, closeness to airport, which I really don't think is going to be an issue in the UK. No. And then some of the more finer details that we normally get at this part of the process. But again, it's really not going to matter. There, there are plenty of viable venues. It's not like in Israel and Portugal where it's just like, yeah, there's only one, maybe two places that could conceivably host this. Yeah, the UK is kind of drowning in Options right now. Yeah, and like the only real news I've seen is that Cardiff is not going to be bidding just because their venue is very busy and they don't want to ship that around, which I fully get that. I would have loved to have seen like all of the constituent countries of the UK kind of battling it out. Yeah, there's not really another Welsh venue on that scale. Still kind of bubbling under here, although I fully expect by the time we are chatting in a couple of weeks that this may have changed dramatically. Rosalind is continuing to make moves with Snap. So she has signed to Universal. She's hitting the top of the Spotify charts in a handful of countries. She's definitely on the Spotify 200 over here and is getting iHeartRadio airplay in some markets, which that as anybody who listened to us talking about the American Song Contest, a lot of radio is iHeartRadio. So that's actual radio airplay is happening. I have to admit, I found her listed on a playlist. I think it was from a station in San Francisco, and the playtime of that was like 4.30 in the morning. But, you know, you got to start somewhere. (laughs) You got to start somewhere. And for all we know, that's about the level of playlist inclusion that the American Song Contest winner got. Yeah, the the less said about that, the better. Uh But yeah, she's definitely coming forward as having the biggest crossover potential from this year's contest. (laughs) What is Manskin doing? 
cosa sta facendo Maniskin? First up, they've been nominated for two MTV Video Music Awards. I'm not sure if this is like a KFC situation where they just moved it over to VMAs. Mm. Just to reflect that the nature of MTV's programming has dramatically changed. But they are nominated for two VMAs, Best New Artist and Best Alternative. Is that Best Alternative video? Who's to say? But it's for I Want to Be Your Slave. It's probably for the video. Yeah, probably. I I feel like the video component is still viable, like thanks to YouTube. But yeah, like in in that gap between the end of TRL and the start of YouTube, the video part of VMA uh, was a big old question mark. And then I see that you've noted here that uh, Achille Loro's Gucci Roblox concert was not nominated for Best Metaverse Performance, where my immediate follow-up question to that, because I had not read the article at that point, was, is that a real category? And yes, Best Metaverse Performance is a real category. (laughs) But yes, apologies to Achille Loro's Gucci Roblox concert, a delightful series of words not nominated. Better luck next year, I'm guessing. But as I mentioned when we talked about that in a previous episode, his avatar really didn't look like him. I feel like that's the first rule. Of <laughs> yeah, and again, the tween, respon- the tween response was, who is Akile Laro? Voting is open right now for both of those categories. There is an audience vote component. I think you're able to cast votes every day. We will have links to both of those ballots in the show notes. Uh, along with the VMA nominations, Lollapalooza was last weekend. That was here in Chicago. I did not attend because I am an old. But yeah, Monoskin performed there and they did open their set with Ziti Buoni. They kept asking the crowd to sing along. I wonder how much of the U.S. audience really is like aware of that song, or if their knowledge of Monoskin really begins with Begin. There had to be somebody in that crowd hearing the opening notes of Begin just going, when are they going to play my favorite song? Yes. <laughs> As someone who had early incarnations of Boston Calling, and who knows how music set lists work, which is you put the song everybody wants to hear at the end of your set list, especially at a festival. Had someone behind me complaining to their friend, when is Bastille going to play Pompeii? As I can clearly hear Pompeii opening. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But ZD Boney feels like a good like festival opener for them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like they weren't doing the same staging that they did at Eurovision, but Mm -hmm. you just think of how that was staged. Like the doors open, he enters and says hello. (laughs) Just get the crowd going. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And the crowd was going from the video that I saw. So, yeah. And like from their Instagram posts, it seems like they had a good time and enjoyed the gig. So congrats on that. Hello, everyone. On behalf of the crew, I ask that you please direct your attention to the screens in front of you as we guide you through our safety instructions. Hooverphonic has partnered with Brussels Airlines and is doing their airline safety video. Did we retweet it into our Twitter feed or did we see somebody else? How did we find this? Yeah, so I am part of a Facebook group that one of the members, who I think is a listener on, on the program, posted the video. And so oh, this seems interesting. Clicked on it and... 10 seconds in, my immediate reaction was, oh, no. Um, yeah, yes, yeah, and then you, yeah. then I saw it, and, well, surely it can't be that bad, and then I clicked play, and oh, gosh. Yes, and I don't know if somebody lost a bet or was cashing in on a favor. I get the sense of what the idea was Yeah, here. but also an airline safety video should not be described as languid. With the airline safety announcement, and maybe this is just me being an American, you have my attention for 90 seconds. 
And this is a four minute long video. Wow. 90 seconds. That's pretty generous. I mean, yeah. And that's largely just because is there anything new that I haven't experienced on any of my previous flights? No? Cool. Yeah. And it starts off so promising. There's an interesting idea going here. And then the instruction that they must have received is you may not deviate from the script at all. And so it's just setting all of the legalese and very precise language of those safety announcements to what was their 2020 entry? Release me. Yeah. Where it's just that kind of droning repetition. Yeah. Yeah. Because it didn't feel melodic to me. There was a melody line, but it was a lot of the same note. Yeah. And it does not scan at all (laughs) no it is very clearly we were given this exact text to set to music and this is the best we could do props to them for at least making something that sort of fulfilled the brief i mean it's just it's not melodic phrasing at all it doesn't rhyme it doesn't come close to rhyming if i were airline executive and i had hoover phonic on speed dial i would be like Hi, can you rework it so that we can go Brussels Airlines? You're in the right place. Exactly. There are some elements that were pretty to look at. There are some elements that were very uncomfortable to look at. The hand seatbelt thing, I was not a fan of. But uh. (laughs) no, there's just a lot happening in the video. I'm just picturing like being in an airline seat and having this on the little seat back TV. Mm -hmm. And you have to listen to it is the thing. Like they they pump it through the main main speaker. Yeah. It reminded me of like the viral videos that would sometimes go out of Southwest. West flight attendants, like, wrapping the safety announcements or something. As long as they hit the main points, it was fine. But, yeah, like, this one, it's just... I don't know. Lavatories is just a really tough word to work into a song. It almost felt like kind of a whose line is it anyway type thing. Or it's like, okay, we have to work this prompt from the audience into the song that we're creating. Yes. But yeah, we'll have a link to it in the show notes. I I feel like everybody needs to see this. No, you need to see the video. It's going to be on the iceberg next year. Yeah. (laughs) It is the iceberg. It it is the iceberg. (laughs) Oh, goodness. But yeah, that it, it was a nice little treat in an otherwise quiet time of Eurovision news cycle. Okay, so I don't have a smooth segue from that to our topic today, but that's going to be the segue. Cool. So, Mike, when did we last talk about the early history of Eurovision? There are a couple of ways to answer that question. In our last episode, we were going over the history of host city swapping. Like, we, we went into the early history, but just as a drive-by. And then there was that episode a couple of years ago where it was trying to get into the origins of European broadcasting, and somehow it got into the reign of Napoleon II? Or <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's the one I'm thinking of, where, like, our plan was... We're going to treat this like a relay race, and you were passing the baton off to me. So 64 episodes later, here we are. (laughs) There have been almost as many episodes of this program as there are total Eurovisions between when we last talked about this. This was in episode 91. If you would like to hear us talk about early radio and how that becomes the EBU, you can go to episode 91. But also, just to give you a quick refresher of what we talked about there, I'm going to give you like the quick version, because I was like, where did we leave off? Because I should probably start there. My main takeaway from the episode is that I made a bunch of Quibi jokes. Do you remember Quibi? (laughs) Yeah, to give you a sense of how long ago this was, this was seven Quibbies ago? Yeah. Quibi is not even on Jeffrey Katzenberg's resume anymore. Nope. (laughs) As we learned this week, Quibi is mostly like a service whose programming has been largely bought by Roku. I mostly just remember it for Rachel Brosnahan's Golden Arm. 
And like all of this Quibi talk will make sense eventually, I promise. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Just making notes of like, why are we talking about this? Do I need to cut this? <laughs> Didn't it die? Yes, it did. Anyways, enough Quibi talk for now. Back in 1950... The International Telegraph Union got bitten by an radioactive television bug and became the European Broadcasting Union. This happens because a lot of contiguous nations who are seeing that, oh, radio is fun, are now starting to say, Mom says it's my turn to use the radio waves, which is kind of ruining things for Switzerland and Belgium and places that are like nice and centrally located. So, boom, now there are international standards for broadcasting and resource sharing. And then in terms of how Eurovision comes into this, there were some concerts in the 1930s that were as much about testing international broadcasting systems and interface than any actual song quality, and working out the kinks of transmitting music with lots of different elements, like vocals. So you have folk traditions, you have different host broadcasters, it's all very Eurovision-y. There's not a lot of info about it because this was in the 30s, and then World War II happens, and UIR gets taken over by Nazi Germany. So, you know, we know of it, but we don't have a whole lot of details. Right. And then post-World War II, the ITU still says issues rebroadcasting aren't really its problem, so the various organizations springing up trying to be in charge have to sort things out, and voila, we get the EBU in 1950. It starts out with 23 broadcasters, and the goal is to facilitate creative cooperation and the exchange of television programs. The word Eurovision gets coined about five years before the contest. So November 5th, 1951, George Campy, writing for the London Evening Standard, is noting that Dutch television had aired a BBC-produced program and says, Eurovision is a system of cooperation for the exchange of television programs between the countries of Western Europe, including Britain. And now we're off to the races. That's a word now. Yay. Yay. (laughs) And then one other thing that also kicks off thinking about how do we broadcast things across Europe is Queen Elizabeth II. So this year is the Platinum Jubilee. It has been 70 years since Queen Elizabeth II became Queen of England. So earlier this summer, while I was in Denver for a concert, got back to the hotel and watched a super weird CBS program about the Platinum Jubilee hosted by Gail King. I did not realize that Gail was like super into the royals, but no, she's super into the royals. Huh, I didn't know that either. But one thing that it kind of missed was how big of a deal the coronation was for television. And I have mostly absorbed the coronation as a television event through it popping up on things like Doctor Who as a plot point. But Queen Elizabeth II's coronation was the first major world event to be broadcast on television in terms of a global scale. And Winston Churchill did not want it to be globally broadcast. Liz overruled him. On this side of the pond, the way that it was broadcast was like film of the event was flown the same day to Canada and the U.S. to be able to show it. That kind of global broadcast gets people thinking and gets the EBU thinking about what it can start to do as a network of broadcasters. People like this whole television thing. What can we do? So in London, September 1953, they come up with the idea of the European television season. This will eventually also be called Eurovision. And the initial plan in 1953 is that each nation will supply a program that will be broadcast by all the other nations. We'll show it in the summer. We'll see how it goes. This sort of internal panel figuring this out. This seems like a great idea. And then in November 1953, they presented to the EBU Marcel Bezencol of the Swiss broadcaster, who is one of the people that makes Eurovision a thing, and there's now the award named after him, requests a television committee be set up. The General Assembly of the EBU doesn't fully get it, but a program committee gets formed to figure out that series of summer programs and how are we going to broadcast them to everybody. So they start planning that, and June 6, 1954 is what gets dubbed the Lille experiment as they start transmitting the picture and sound of things via microwave link from Lille. So what do you think gets aired in this first season of programming? Oh, well, I mean, I'm guessing the 
technical capabilities are still somewhat limited. They've already done a coronation, so they don't want to do that again. I don't know, military parades? Okay, these are all very good guesses because there is a meeting in February of 1954 because they're having trouble finding common ground for what programs qualify as having international interest. Mm -hmm. And like the UK as well, we would need like another coronation in terms of what would be popular across (laughs) Europe. And they still haven't fulfilled that request, by the way. Yeah. (laughs) Just I'm doing the Judge Judy tapping at my watch, banging on the desk. The first official quote unquote Eurovision broadcast as part of this season is the Narcissus Festival from Switzerland. And then there's a tour of the Vatican. And then they kind of get close to another coronation because they have like a parade of the Royal Navy passing by Queen Elizabeth II. I don't know. It feels very quibby to me. I don't know this, but behind the scenes of this, there is also technical difficulties. And that's kind of why you have this very weird hodgepodge of programming. Because it turns out clearing films and the equipment to broadcast it through customs is tricky. Oh, yeah. I didn't even consider that part of it. (laughs) Yeah, just from like an equipment perspective, like we have to get a bunch of stuff over to a central location where it makes sense to broadcast this from. Right. So the UK, they end up airing that parade of the Royal Navy passing by Queen Elizabeth. They had wanted to show a variety program called Club Continental. But the performers of the show are unionized and are like, hello, we're going to have an audience of how many? 3.5 million? Okay, yeah, we would like more money, please. Which, good for them. Know your worth. Elsewhere, uh, the Danish broadcaster plans to show something called Rendezvous in Copenhagen, but when that falls through, they show a prize cattle show. (laughs) They did change the name, right? (laughs) (laughs) I really hope so, but apparently in Der Spiegel, they did say, thank goodness the cows don't have a union. Yeah. (laughs) So again, behind the scenes... They're kind of scrambling, trying to figure this out. Marcel is determined to make this a success. And one of the things they air is the World Football Cup in Bern. And they negotiate coverage of this by agreeing with the broadcaster to back any loss of the gate up to 10,000 francs. Hmm. It's just like, we are going to make this a success. We are going to put sports on the air. And it sounds like that gamble probably paid off in the long run. (laughs) Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. And unlike Quibi, this works. People are very into this television thing. Prices of TVs are going down. So more people actually have sets. And they want to watch things because we have a television in the house now. So after that initial season, which, again, given all of the hodgepodgeness of it, does work because you're getting to see different parts of Europe. So Marcel Besancon, uh, Jean de Arcy of French TV, and René McCall of the BBC think that a new initiative for TV needs to happen every year for further promotion of the medium. So two ideas get proposed in January 1955, a song contest... And another competition of amateur performers that's provisionally called the Top Town Cup. Do you know what happens with the Top Town Cup? Since this is the first that I'm hearing of it, probably nothing good. It never happens. It never gets, okay. full, it never gets further developed. Or if it does, it, there's just nothing in the annals of history about what happened with the process of trying to make that. And then in 1955, later that year, San Remo is aired by the Eurovision Network when the committee visits Italy and becomes the direct inspiration for what they are dubbing the European Grand Prix. In October 1955, they're like, we're going to have a European Grand Prix the Eurovision Song Contest, and we will hold it in spring 1956. Since the Swiss proposed this, they're like, you're going to host it. This is your problem. (laughs) And it's not just that the Swiss proposed this that they end up hosting. They're actually a very nice host for the first iteration of this for a number of reasons. First of all, they are geographically central, as has been seen with the experiment of broadcasting things. It it makes sense if this is going to be transmitted over microwaves for it to be from someplace central to everybody who's going to be airing it. So that is Switzerland. And then elsewhere, since the inspiration... For the contest with San Remo, it makes sense to host it in an Italian-speaking region of Switzerland. So Lugano gets chosen as the canton, and Teatro Cursal ends up as the venue. 
And then in terms of rules, each country that participates could send a maximum of two songs. The songs need to be between three and three and a half minutes in length, which feels familiar. Only solo artists can compete. No bands, no no combos, no what have yous. And the nations were strongly encouraged to have their own selection processes. Imagine if the American Song Contest had tried to strongly suggest that, like, NBC Minnesota have a selection. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it could have worked, but... For all we know, it could work if they try it again. But I feel like it it was much easier in 1956 when you'd have a handful of broadcasters over so many broadcasters. So in the initial contest, there are seven nations sending entries. Each of them sends two songs per nation. But there are also a few other nations airing the broadcast. Austria and Denmark just missed the cutoff to sign up, but they still air the program. And then elsewhere, the UK is like, hey, that sounds fun, but we're going to do our own version of that and we'll not be sending anything this year. But we like the idea. We're going to do that. They have the UK Popular Song Fest, and we'll talk about that in a minute because that ends up having a lot of influence on things. But in terms of the first Eurovision, they do air, but they join like 45 minutes in. They miss like the first round of songs from everybody. So like they, they join the broadcast when everybody's performing their second songs of the night. And then in terms of the juries and voting, every nation was asked to send two members for the jury. The jury didn't watch the contest in the theater. They were in a room off of the theater, just like on a television to, to replicate the at-home viewing experience. Huh, okay. And then Luxembourg couldn't send two members for the jury, so they were replaced with two Swiss nationals to vote in their place. So Switzerland had four votes, in essence, then? Yes, and oh boy, in terms of the voting, each member of the jury gave each song between one and ten points based on how much they liked it. They could vote for their own songs. Oh, surely nothing bad will come of that. (laughs) Yes. For reasons that are unexplained, these rules are never used again by the Eurovision Song Contest. And also just because, like, in terms of who won, the first Eurovision held in Switzerland is won by Switzerland. Good for them. (laughs) We don't know by how many points. There is no full breakdown. The only announcement of who won is just, here's who won. We don't know how the voting shook out. There's an Italian newspaper at the time reported that Refrain won with 102 points, but there's no corroboration by the organizers, so we have no clue if that's valid. Right. And then we have attempted to reconstruct what the voting was based on interviewing the jury members. And that has also failed. So we literally do not know who placed where Okay. in terms of the 14 entries. Right. Oh, goodness. Why would they not want to keep that system? I don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> why, would we, why would we immediately make it so you can't vote for your own nation? For all I know, the voting is clean, but also we have no record of it. So I And they were like, yeah, just assuming that everybody gave their home entry 10 points and then like randomly assigned the other ones. It's still just a very wild series of events. Another part of why we have no record of that is that we don't have a way to really watch this one. This is from the era of television where we did not save the recordings. Right. We literally don't have any other video recordings of this other than like the reprise of the winning song from a newsreel. We do have audio of most of the contest minus the interval act and they just found like a large cache of photos in recent years from that first contest but we have no actual video of that beyond just the the reprise oh that's so devastating from like just a television history perspective Mm -hmm. and it's not just eurovision i mean like this was happening in the u.s and just like anything that was recorded so well we need more tape or we need more tape and who's gonna want to watch this yeah, and so, okay, we'll just tape over it. And she's like, no, don't. We need that classic episode of whatever. So. Well, and it's fascinating because there is only one other edition of the Eurovision Song Contest that we have zero video of, and it's 1964. The first contest happens. It seems like there's a few hiccups with how the voting ends up happening, but 
it's popular enough that they decide to do it again. Here's where the UK Popular Song Fest comes in. The UK airs Eurovision halfway through, but ultimately decides to run their own festival of British popular songs in August 1956. The main things that are different about the festival of british popular songs is that it includes a scoreboard which is lovely we love to see the numbers and voting happens via regional juries rather than just two people that you sent eurovision immediately sort of decides to incorporate those ideas into the pan-european contest and which allows viewers at home to follow the voting procedure in the next year of the contest a new voting system was introduced surprise where each nation has a jury of 10 members from each country casting a single vote for their favorite song mm-hmm Jury members from one country could not vote for the song of their own country. And hey, we kept that rule around until today. A lot of what happens with the Festival of British Popular Songs immediately gets folded into Eurovision 2 Electric Boogaloo. The history of Eurovision is also the history of broadcasting. Because we have things like this, we have that whole thing last summer where it's like, hey, we were testing out filming an event in HD when Greece hosted Eurovision. We found the tape. We're going to show it to you. Early TV history is just very fun. Mm-hmm. And part of it is very sad just because we didn't save a bunch of the stuff. But there is a book on the BBC's first century that I had my eye on because I was at my local bookstore yesterday. I saw them like, ooh, like where it's just very fun to dig into sort of with this, how we were figuring out this medium. Yes. The sort of problems that they needed to solve for and like the real limitations that they were facing. It's fascinating work. There's so much to dig into. So much of the initial European television season, like they're just like building the plane while they're flying it. Yeah, exactly. And that's how you end up with Denmark broadcasting a cattle show. Yep. <laughs> uh, well, on that note, that's going to do it for this episode of the Euro What. Thanks for listening. The Euro What podcast is hosted by Ben Smith. That's me and Mike McComb. That's me. You can follow the Euro What on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcast app of your choice. If you'd like to support the show, we're also on Patreon at patreon.com slash Eurowhat. Show notes are in the description of this episode and on our website at eurowhat.com. If you'd like to contact us, we're at Eurowhat on Twitter, or you can email eurowhatpodcast at gmail.com. Next time on the Eurowhat, we say arrivederci to Italy as host country by talking about the impact that a crossover hit has had on popular culture. Volare.